I'd love to see whole city completely covered in algae, absorbing all that carbon dioxide and producing heat and energy for the building. There are lots of features you could think about. Hey, Carl. Hey, Iram. How's it going? It's going. I've been uh, pretty busy using chat GPT to do as much work as possible so I can have more play life than work life. What's been your big finding in using ChatGPT? I asked it to start writing some emails or drafting highlights. So I asked it to draft the top challenges in synthetic biology and it did a good job. It's a good head start. That's what I'm going to say. It, didn't, it wasn't complete. It wasn't like, okay, this happened in two seconds. I'm done my work. I think it's a good head start. I feel like it's helpful in that regard. And besides ChatGPT, we use MidJourney a lot too for images, and that's been helpful in some regard too, in some aspects. It really depends on the prompts, of course, this whole idea of AI communication, which is for another episode, but it's been helpful. I know like a lot of people, this is a hot button topic. What about you? Have you been using ChatGPT? So in fact, I was using it last night. I have, and we'll talk about this at some other point. I have an article I've been working on for a while about the creation of the space elevator tether. And the thinking is that tether would be made out of graphene. It would be a very, very like less than a centimeter thick and like about a meter wide. Uh, You have to imagine this super material that is very Mm -hmm. thin and very strong. So I started asking ChatGPT questions about what's the volume of this tether. And it would give me some answers, but then it kept reminding me, this is speculative. This is still in the research and development stage. So I found it to be a little bit annoying. So it's like half was very useful and half was very annoying. And then I started asking it questions about like, what's the biggest man-made structure on the planet? And it's the Great Wall of China. But I was more interested in more modern structures like the Burj Khalifa and or this thing that the Saudis are building, the Neom line. But it couldn't really answer the questions in terms of like what the volume of materials are necessary for those. And then I asked it questions like, how many buildings are there in Manhattan? What's the volume of all the buildings in Manhattan? And it would come up with these answers like, well, this is the number of housing units. And that means there's this many buildings without really taking into consideration that buildings in Manhattan range from one story to like over 100. So I found it to be a bit frustrating. It has a way to go. But all that said, we do know that a couple of years ago, AI was used to accelerate protein discovery with AlphaFold. And that was a huge thing. And the New York Times has had an article about the use of AI for designing proteins, which is going to be a really big deal. So there are people who are on Twitter talking about how biotech biology moves really slowly without really taking into regard the fact that AI has been a part of this for a few years, and it's just going to continue to accelerate the discovery of medicines. And I think all of this really is a nice segue into our conversation that we're having with Paul Fremont, who is a longtime friend of ours. He was one of the first people we interviewed for What's Your Biostrategy? And Paul, who I believe is trained as a protein engineer, wears many, many hats, The big one that we should mention is that he's a co-founder of SymbiCity, which is the United Kingdom's National Innovation and Knowledge Center for the adoption and use of synthetic biology. They incubate new companies. They've got accelerator programs. They've got lab space in London. They provide funding. They provide training. They provide mentoring. And Paul is a huge champion for the synthetic biology industry. Yeah, so that uniquely positions him to know a lot about 
what has been developing in the discipline and now the industry. So everyone, you're in for a treat to listen to our conversation with Paul Fremont. Here we go. Paul, we're thrilled to have you and to be speaking with you today. I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of background on yourself, how you got to where you are. Sure. It's great to be here with you, Carl. I'm a professor at Imperial College in London. I'm trained as a biochemist, a scientist, a science researcher in biochemistry and structural biology, which is working out the three-dimensional shapes of macromolecules and how they work. Did a postdoc at Yale, came back to the UK, then set up my own group in a cancer research institute, and then spent quite a long time there actually developing my lab, growing my lab, developing science, enjoying things, discoveries. And then around 2000, I left the Cancer Research UK London Research Institute, came over to Imperial College to run their Center for Structural Biology. And then around 2005, I met a guy called Dick Kidney, who's a colleague at Imperial. He was a visiting professor at MIT. And then I was over at MIT with him hanging out a little bit. And guess what? There was Randy Retberg and Drew Endy and those folk who were all kind of developing their ideas on synthetic biology and iGEM and all that sort of stuff. And so it was a kind of bit of an epiphany moment when you suddenly saw this kind of thinking that would be applied to something I've researched in for more than 25 years. Never even thought the idea that I could at all build a biological system. I spent all my life studying them and trying to work out how they work, never mind actually constructing one or designing one. So this was really quite illuminating for me. And ever since that moment, and we did an iGEM team in 2006, and this has now been my full kind of attention for the last almost 20 years. So watching this whole field grow and develop, and my whole lab is now working on synthetic biology. So can you talk about like the, when did SimbaCity come yeah. into being and what's the mandate of SimbaCity? Yeah. So Dick and I were pushing really hard with the UK government to try and fund synthetic biology very early on in the development. And we ended up pushing them to develop a roadmap, which came out of the UK, and then a whole bunch of funding that followed that into supporting the public sector or the research environment. And so part of that was a competitive bid for a national center for translation of synthetic biology called an innovation knowledge center. So Dick and I put a bid in, we won the bid, and we set up Simbi City at Imperial College. And the role of Simbi City is to try and accelerate the translation of of early stage technologies or lower tier level, we call them technologies, into upper tier level technologies around synthetic biology and to act in a kind of national hub consensus space to bring together people and really develop infrastructure to support all that. And we've been doing that successfully since then. And we were very excited to be part of that whole growth of spin outs and startups that started happening in the UK. In fact, we sort of initiated quite a lot of that initial growth. Hard to remember, Carl, but in 2015, 2014, there was still quite a lot of healthy skepticism about the technology in this part of the world. Maybe in the US is slightly more, but it was it doesn't seem long ago, but things have moved quite a lot in the last sort of seven, eight years. Yeah, I do want to get into that because I think we've known each other that long. But in my mind, it seems like the UK was a pioneer in developing a roadmap for synthetic biology. I think the Obama administration had some kind of roadmap and we got excited about it. But I almost feel like the UK roadmap came out before. Is that the case? 
Yeah, it was. It was the first sort of national coordinated report that was requested by government. And it was really quite ahead of the time. And a lot of the US colleagues were quite jealous because they thought we've got our act together so quickly. On the other hand, they were quite pleased because then they could point to the UK and say, hey, look what those guys are doing over there. We're still trying to get something going here. Now, as of today, of course, the tables have turned quite a lot because the US now is going hell for leather for biotechnology, bioeconomy, right up at the highest possible level with President Biden signing that declaration not so long ago, which is a really big deal. In some ways, we're now behind the curve quite a lot. The UK is quite good at, we had the first underground system in the world. We had the first sewerage system in the Victorian era, but unfortunately we haven't upgraded them since then. So we really need to now get our act together and start looking quite hard about upgrading our whole strategy here based on what's going on in the US and other parts of the world. And we were doing that. That's a great segue to our next question, because I'd love to hear here, what you mentioned earlier that the amount of progress we've seen since 2014, 2015 has been tremendous. And I, I was hoping maybe you could talk about that progress because the way I was going to ask the question is it's been five years since we did the interview for What's Your Biostrategy, which seems amazing because yeah. that was in yeah. 2017. And it seemed like things were moving along quickly then. It seems like they've accelerated. But what's your point of view in terms of where have you seen the biggest progress? Yeah, it's a really good question. There are two things of have First thing that's happened is a quite a lot of private investment has gone into the synthetic biology industry. And that's a tangible, measurable thing, right? Billions of dollars have gone into investing startups, primarily in the US, but quite a lot in the UK and other parts of the world. So there is this maturity developing of an industry, a nascent industry that it was in the mid 2010, 2015 or whatever, to becoming something which is now got some serious funding behind it. I guess around $40 billion worldwide of private investment gone into Symbio and maybe between five and $8 billion public sector funding, i.e. government funding world wide into the field. So these are large numbers. And so what we're seeing is the effects of those investments, I think. The public sector investments are now leading to very healthy publication in the field. We've got a lot of very exciting publications. The field is really matured in that way. It's now a proper, well-established interdisciplinary research field. And then combined with that, you're getting all of that training, PhD training, postdocs coming out, a lot of the public sector activity. And then that leads into this kind of like startup entrepreneurship world that we both identified early on. And that's continued to grow. And some of those companies are now went to Series A, Series B. And of course, Ginkgo being on the New York Stock Exchange, indicating the rapid IPO of opportunities in this space and other IPOs that are coming down the track. So it's that maturity. What has happened on the ground? Technologies developed, automation, high throughput technologies, liquid handling technologies, integrating computational techniques and technologies. These are all now really penetrating the sector and the field. And probably what's missing, and I think you're probably going to come on to this, is that where are these kind of products? Where are we beginning to see the products? So we're in this huge upward accelerating spurt of so many different application sectors. It's extraordinary when you look at a technology that's hitting so many different areas from clean water, environmental technologies, right through to pharma, biotech, industrial biotechnology, food, cellular agriculture. All of this is happening and it's all been invested in and all of these companies are growing. And there's going to be a slew of products, but I guess most of us are there thinking, where do I point? Where is that big kind of consumer biotech product that I put on every day or I use in my hand every day? And they're happening, but 
we're not there yet. There are a few exceptions. One of my favorite companies, I love Checkerspot. I think they're such a cool company. They're making products. And the CEO said, where are the products? Let's get real here. And I like that about the field because in the industry, what's happening is that there is this reality check. We can't just be a cool industry because yeah. <laughs> some of those cool people that started this off are actually got gray hairs now, right? Because it's 15, 20 years. And I think that maturity and also people who are founding companies and startup companies are really focusing you know, early on what their product strategy would be, where the products would come. So what you wrote five years ago, I think is incredibly relevant now because a lot of the startups are actually thinking very strongly about what are their products going to be rather than oh it's a cool idea let's just see if we get some more fun you know what i mean it's a change so i'm glad you bring up checker spot because we are talking to charles in the next couple of weeks but the day after biden signed the executive order john Mello of amaris was on this panel and he said there's not a product that everybody in this room uses that doesn't contain one of our ingredients the ingredients are there is this most yeah. people don't know and i think exactly. it goes back to that thing where most people don't really care where things come from. And yeah, so exactly. it, on one level, we will continue to do the work or the companies will continue the work and deliver the products. And consumers might never know that unless know. the company chooses to put it front to, and to, center. I agree. No, it's a good point. Yeah. And in some ways, success may be silent. We may end up removing quite a lot of the petrochemical dependence, synthetic chemistry dependence on a lot of products without people knowing that. And I yeah. think that would be a shame, actually, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> We need to shout a bit louder, I think. It's interesting because investor Ari Lipman and I on Twitter were running a poll in terms of like conceptually or theoretically, how would you spend the Biden money? And over and over again, people were saying education, workforce, and publicity slash marketing so that people understand yeah. what this industry should be, should look like, yeah, uh, right. engagement with the public. I'm curious. So you talked a lot about the progress and it is in many cases invisible, but where are the failings? We can talk about the industry has matured to a point where we've seen companies fail, but what about where are the other failures? Yeah. I mean, in the field, if you like, in the actual research field, remember that, okay, so Synthetic Poly was set up very early on as a kind of innovative concept of how you might engineer living systems and make the engineering of those living systems easier. And so your engineering is all being carried out at the genetic level, right? The code that makes cells do what they do. So could we engineer that code in a way to make those cells or those biological systems do stuff that we wanted to do, make products, make materials, make active living biosensors, whatever, right? And the whole field was set up on that premise, we still don't understand the language of DNA. So we know it's a code and we know what the code is, ATGC, and we know it, there's a lot of it. There's 3 billion letters in humans so in each cell. So there's a lot of code, but we don't know the language of that code. And the language changes in different organisms and because there's a, so much of context dependency. So what hasn't happened is our fundamental understanding of how to predictably design and engineer living systems at the genetic level. That has not happened yet. What is happening is that we can build and construct living systems and we can test them and we can prototype them and we can work out the way to go and to get products out, get cells making stuff at high yield and high titer. Sure, we still don't fully understand the language of DNA and how it's expressed in living systems. And I think that is the fundamental challenge that we need to solve so that we can actually write DNA in a language that is understood by biology and will actually translate into something that we have written. <laughs> Do you think that kind of understanding of that language will be facilitated? by computational tools like AI or yeah. machine learning. Yeah, 100%. What those tools will do will allow us to build more rationality into our engineering design process. What they won't do is to allow us to understand the deep fundamental insights, mechanistic or biological insights, because those tools are really good at picking up lots of 
patterns. They're very good at analyzing very complex data sets and producing signal where we can't see it. They're very good at that, but they're not necessarily going to provide us with that kind of very deep insight. Having said that, those tools will enable further work and will enable rationality to emerge. So in some ways, they will be essential for us to achieve that, but they won't do it on their own. Some people think we'll learn everything from machine learning. We won't. We still need to have some deep thinking there and deep experimentation into how we will achieve that full understanding of language. But it will happen because we're now scaling, right? We've got tools, we've got automation, we've got DNA synthesis, which is now coming on tap at a reasonable level, still not as much as I'd hoped for by now in terms of the scale or the size of synthesis of what I couldn't get synthesized. I remember when Craig Venter published that beautiful synthetic genome of the uh, whatever it was called Cynthia I think he right. called it that was in 2010 and you're thinking we still can't routinely write small bacterial genomes which is problematic for me and by this time I thought we might have been in a position where we could at least more technologically routinely maybe write these small microbial genomes but we can't so technologically there's a lot of work to be done on synthetic genomics writing genomes understanding the language of what we write is translated properly all of that but it will happen you mentioned that one of the challenges right now is that there isn't a deep understanding of how DNA is translated, but is there a specific discipline for the study of understanding DNA and how it's expressed? Is it translational DNA, writing genomes that you mentioned? It's more about what well, we understand the basic principles of how genetic information is translated in the cell, because that's the central dogma of molecular biology, where your genes are regulated, you turn on the gene, it produces a messenger RNA, and then that gets translated into a protein. The central dogma of molecular biology is a theory that says that genetic information flows in one direction from DNA to RNA to protein or from RNA directly to protein. You don't go from protein to DNA, though there are proteins that manufacture DNA, but it's always in this one direction. You go DNA, RNA, protein, or RNA, protein. So that is a central dogma. It's very essential to all of the life sciences. That's the most simplistic way. And a lot of synthetic biology is based on that kind of level of understanding. But as we move into more complex organisms and even into microbial systems where the, the genetic components or the genomes, if you like, there is issues around context dependency. Parts of the more complex genomes, we don't really understand what that genetic information does. It's not coding for proteins. So there are complex regulatory mechanisms that are genome organized and genome driven. There is many complex mechanisms on epigenetic control, gene expression through post-translational modification of histone tails and all of that in higher eukaryotes. And so what I'm saying about if I set a computer and I wrote a DNA sequence to do a particular function, how guaranteed can I be now that my writing will be put into a cell and will perform that function? The language, the expression, my, my writing will be expressed in a language that the cell delivers what I wrote. And I think that's just a simple analogy, but that's, we can't do that yet. We can put in simple genes like GFP or glean for fluorescent proteins and turn them on in cells, or we can put in the little biosynthetic pathways, but there's so much more to learn. I'm not confusing it with translation in the normal messenger RNA translation. I'm talking about a higher level of translation of genetic genome function. If someone wanted to investigate that more deeply, what discipline would you point them well, to? Well, a lot of it's going to be on construction and design and all the omics technology, the transcriptomic, proteomics, all of the cellular measurement technologies. 
Okay, Paul mentioned omics. Omics is a study of understanding the totality of different biological processes or biomolecules in a specific organism, especially on the cellular level. So for example, investigating genes and how they move and transform from one system to another is called genomics. And Paul mentioned other types of biological areas of study, such as proteomics, tabulomics, transcriptomics, and the list goes on. So it's worth looking into to reveal what's going on in the microcosmos. So this comes into measurement, holistic measurements, single cell measurements, where we're looking to learn. And we can do some of that and building up a more detailed understanding of those measurements and how they relate to the designs that we've been testing. But as you move up in complexity, then there's a lot of DNA gets more and more complicated. And also there is a lot of unpredictability and non-robustness of things which will occur. So that's at the genome level. And then at the output level, which would be at the protein level, there's still quite a work to be done on that. And a lot of the simple things are you know, enzymes or genes that are sensing things, proteins that are sensing things or proteins that are binding to things, or there's a lot of that kind of stuff, but we still don't understand metabolic burden, when we're putting our genetic circuits in, how stable they are, how long they last. Genome integration is pretty easy in a lot of organisms, but in some organisms, it's not very easy. It'll be particularly hard. So there's loads of tools and developments that we need to learn. So I suppose it's more of a high level concept is that we we have this common code for all different organisms, but we don't understand how all the different organisms speak. We were also talking about like where there were some failures. In terms of failures, I think in the commercialization of synthetic biology, there's been some very difficult moments where companies have not succeeded essentially, or the valuations of those companies are not what we expect. You know, I guess they are failures, but they're part of the process and, but they haven't destabilized the investment cycle. So in some ways they're part of what we were trying to do early on, which is to try and push the needle a bit. So maybe these failures are perfectly fine. I think failure on product delivery, whether people are not shouting high enough or failure on the reality of scale up. It's very easy. All of these companies thinking about all the products are going to make, but then we've got to manufacture them at scale. So there's a failure on that understanding. Then there's a failure on how does that work more globally? So are we going to get into a global manufacturing competition? Feedstocks, feedstocks, where do they come from at scale? Yeah, those kind of things. And then that leads into metrology and standards development, which has been very poor in synthetic biology. Nothing's really happened. So there are lots of stuff that's kind of not happened. It was really interesting in London because it really became clear that whole biomanufacturing infrastructure, yeah. the need for that. And then yeah. the fascination or this push towards fermentation, where we know that fermentation isn't the only way to manufacture things with biology. So I think that there's also that disconnect. And I think that bodes well for the companies that are yeah. not fermentation companies as long as people understand that they can serve as alternatives to fermentation. No, I agree. There are different ways to manufacture things, but I think it's when you come on to products that are very visible, like textiles or like new materials or like fabrics or all those things where scale is going to be really crucial. It's a kind of elephant in the room for every synthetic biology company is scale. And I think that's something we need to address quite quickly and have pathways to scale, which are very open and very clear and understanding for young entrepreneurs. They know where that's going. And that's an area which I think really is important. And I think the US will probably be able to do. We're struggling with that because we live in a small island. We don't have a lot of land space and we don't have a lot of biomass either. So we're going to be struggling a little bit on that. Yeah. So scale, I don't want to talk too much about failures, do we, Carl? No, I don't think so. We have a bright future in front of us and a failure yeah. are lessons for the industry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just a comment and maybe a question about the failures really quick. You mentioned investment in the space and the typical investors have traditionally invested in tech companies and they spec like a 
high return after five years, yeah. seven years. But biology yeah. doesn't work that quickly. Do you no. think tempering expectations is something that's needed? Yeah, no, definitely. I think we're over the hype phase. We're into the consolidation phase and where reality checks need to happen, which is why I like a lot of the companies that, that we're involved in are talking about products quite early on in their development cycle, which I think is really important. What will their products be? Now, obviously, they don't have to necessarily be consumer products, but a product of something. The companies have to make things, whatever they are. It could make IP if you want, but they've got to have something that they're putting value on that company. In the early companies, that was all missing. So you're right. Investors need to be educated on the opportunity. But on the other hand, there's going to be some big drivers coming down the pipe where governments are going to want more sustainable production, more sustainable fabrication of things. In some ways, the companies that are in that space could get a, a lift up depending on what sort of tax breaks or what kind of emerges out of all of the climate change meetings that may or may not happen. There'll be other existential drivers for the industry that, that will make it attractive for investors, not just to save the planet. Then you've got to look at the sector. So what's interesting in the US is the companies are very much in the healthcare space with the genome editing and the very high value returns. That's always traditionally been a very investable, high return space. But what's interesting is that because synthetic biology is so broad, there's quite a lot of environmental companies or material companies that are emerging with a completely different business model. Yeah. And I suppose what happens there is you get investors all mixed up. It's very difficult to follow all these unless you've got specialized investors who understand what the fiber industry looks like and how we make money on it as opposed to some sort of living probiotic therapeutic business model. So I think quite problematic being an investor in synthetic biology. Yeah, I don't think it's easy. Yeah, it's really tough to call out the winners when you've got such a broad platform technology, but that's exciting as well, of course. So we do have a question here. We know that you've been a big advocate for biodesign and served as a judge for the biodesign challenge. Yeah. So what progress have you seen in the space? What gets you excited about the future of biodesign? Yeah, I love biodesign design because very early on in the development of the field of synthetic biology, there was this realization that other disciplines could contribute to the field, not just the scientific technological disciplines. That understanding, that opportunity was really exposed by the biodesign challenge and and other activities around the world, particularly in London. And I think it was the idea of bringing designers, other types of maybe architects, other really other interesting disciplines, artists, although art has always been involved in science in some ways, into the conversation. And then you end up having quite an interesting discussion about what the technology could achieve, what the future visions of the technology could be from an art and design perspective. And that's something I don't think that scientists are trained to think about. So when you bring those together, then you have really fabulous ideas that may not be feasible, but what they do is they generate a lot of interest, a lot of enthusiasm, and a lot of opportunity for crossover thinking, which I think is great. I think it's one of the beautiful things about this field. And that's what biodesign does, because it's bringing completely different trained people and thinking into this space with a common, what if I could use biology as a design material, what that look like, and not just in a traditional context, more in a sort of like biotechnology. What if I could use biotechnology as a design material? What would that look like? I think that that's really exciting. So it's been going on for a while, right? It's quite mature now. And I think what it does is it throws up really novel ideas that people wouldn't necessarily think about. I have my own favorites, but they're, I must admit, they're a bit eclectic. There was a lovely project out of the RCA, the Royal College of Art here in London, making pigeons when they poo. We have a lot of pigeons in London, a lot of poo. Oh, we have them in New York too. Yeah. And it was like, you know, they would just be engineered that it would be a sort of perfume poo. So it was like a, 
<laughs> Everything would smell lovely. I thought that was quite a cool project. There are lots of different other projects which are slightly less cool. Elvis's Ear was a project which I wasn't particularly was about, which was taking it a little bit far about if you could stem cell re-engineer Elvis's ear, what would that look like? It, it brought in a lot of other kind of eclectic <laughs> thinking into space. But I think the other projects that came out of this was something about the biocellulose project, right? How do we use bacterial cellulose or kombucha drinks? This was Suzanne Lee and her really innovative work around exploring new types of materials and how that might lead into new fashionable items and things. I thought that was really exciting. And it seems old hat now, but at the time it was really innovative. And what Suzanne did by making these garments out of bacterial cellulose was incredible. Really opening up a whole new idea of biological materials as a design tool. I was really excited to hear that biodesign is a discipline. Like I met someone they're like, yeah, I studied biodesign. And I'm like, I wish that was available to me when yeah. I was studying in college, at least as a class. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, in, and particularly in the architectural space, like the architects love it as well with these new materials, new opportunities for building houses that have different features on them, either living features, non-living features. I think those are all very exciting crossovers. Now, the problem, of course, comes is when these ideas get put up there. And of course, with art and design, you have wonderful graphics and imagery and all the rest of it. And then people think, oh my goodness, this looks like a, a real thing. The technological capabilities where we are now, what would be needed to achieve these ideas, that gap is still quite large. And mm. in some way, but that's fine because the great cool ideas ultimately will spur on new technology innovation. So I don't, I don't think it's a problem. Opportunities know. in that gap. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Even just seeing like these, these skyscrapers that are being built completely out of wood that have been in the news. And it yeah. seems like, why did it take so long? I know that's not like synthetic biology related, yeah. but just seeing the fact that finally people realize, oh, you could build a 15 story building out of wood. We're engineering the wood. The wood is cut to the building before it's delivered. And you can build this 15-story building out of this wood that doesn't burn the way normal wood would burn. And so I think yeah. those kinds of innovations are super interesting because they will set the yeah. stage for yeah. the things that will be possible with Symbio. And then on the other side of it is just seeing this company like Biomason. And now we have another one, Prometheus, that are both making yeah. bricks. Yeah. The kind of interest that they've received just shows that there's a huge appetite for those kind of architectural features already. It's going to be and then scale up to have the impact that we all want. I'd love to see whole city completely covered in algae or <laughs> right. absorbing all that carbon dioxide and producing heat and energy for the building. There are lots of features you could think about. You could have pollution detection systems everywhere. There, all these ideas have been thought through. They're all exciting ideas, trees that would light up at night, all this sort of stuff. And they're great. And they, they spur on innovation. And I think they spur on thinking. So the more thinking, but then you get real companies that come up and say, we want to do this. That's what I find really exciting is when companies really actually start trying to deliver this sort of stuff yeah. in the real world, like you just mentioned. And I think that those are very exciting companies because they're really taking a leap into that new world that we all want. Yeah, I'd like to think that the kind of housing shortage that we're seeing, I don't want to say globally, I know for sure in the United States, we have this yeah. housing shortage. And I'd like to think that some of the solutions that we propose or think about could yeah. impact those problems. Yeah, I agree. In fact, that biotechnology in the 15, 20 years ago, it was there, right? And it was producing stuff and it was pretty much pharma focused. It was all pharma. But here we are 15, 20 years later and biotechnology now is everywhere. It's in architecture. Yeah. It's in every sector you can think of. And I think that's what the power 
biosynthetic biology and people say well, what is it but that thinking did not happen 15 years ago and that's where the power of this conversation has taken us to is this realization that this technology is actually pervasive and can hit in all application areas it's amazing yeah that's the point of our podcast really it's yeah. you really you did a good job of describing our podcast we'll have to put that in the trailer because okay. it is about growing everything like you can grow literally like everything you need to live in society yeah that, that's what we hope and the thing about it, the problem is that we've used nature all our lives humans have since they existed as you know and had a reasonably harmonious relationship with nature until the last 200 years where we got a bit out of hand yeah how do we reconnect with that kind of harmonious relationship with nature and how do we use nature in a much more sustainable way and i think those are all the sort of things that obviously we're all thinking about trying to hope to do but it's quite hard that's the point it's really hard so i think getting small exemplars i'm always talking about impact in the real world all the startup companies i deal with how are you going to make impact in the real world it's great in your labs and how are you going to change people's lives kind of thing and those are the questions that all these synthetic biology companies need to really start addressing including the big ones yeah i agree like yeah i'd like to see them answering that question one of our themes for the podcast is this idea of urban versus rural biotech yeah and i'm curious what do you see as being the relationship with a big city like london and you guys are at imperial college you've got yeah. a lot of things yeah. going on obviously you're not going to scale up in the city of london but what do you think that relationship is going to look like in the future between the big cities where biotech happens in rural Areas. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. Big cities have a lot of population, a lot of population density. They have to find solutions, which is not required in a rural environment, just living solutions, transportation solutions, servicing solutions, energy solutions, because there's a lot of population density in there. And in some ways, that's a driver for technological innovation in some ways, I see. And we see that a bit here. Cities do adopt things quite quickly, much more quickly than they're adopted in a rural environment. And I think that there's a cultural context as well. But I think that's a driving force for innovation for solutions to some of the acute problems in these large urban areas is really important. And that could be many different areas. We talked about like the micro agriculture within cities, the vertical agriculture that's going on in Singapore, which is a big thing, clean water, the carbon dioxide, pollution sensing systems, cleaning systems, bioremediation systems, all of that wastewater treatment, all of these things which cities have to get right, all got biotechnology written all over them. And I think it's just a matter of getting some of those biotech solutions at a cost price that would allow allow them to be implemented in some way. In a rural environment, different. There isn't those sort of pressures. But on the other hand, you do have access to quite a lot of biomass in a rural environment. You could argue rural communities could quite easily see localized distributed manufacturing of things they need based on local biomass, local waste or whatever at a scale that is proportionate to the community required. And you could quite imagine that. So we've got a very small town near us and they've got a microbrewery, you know, thousands of microbreweries all over the US. But that's just the same technology. Why would those microbreweries then for rural communities not produce products that would be helpful for those communities like maybe oil, diesel? I don't know what you could imagine a future where distributed manufacturing at a rural community level could work i've been in the u.s and i've seen how rural some communities can really do things together and i do wonder whether that is a way forward you know that's going to be very different than say a london or a city where you've got the need to do things in a slightly more directed way or solutions would be much more directed it's interesting that you bring up the microbreweries because i always say that business wouldn't exist if it wasn't a business like people wouldn't go right. into that if they weren't going to make money and right. i do think it does serve as a great example 
example for biomanufacturing writ large, yeah. Yeah. because it's not inconceivable. I'm going to say it's relatively easy, but I think it's not inconceivable to say that some of those places could become manufacturers, like you say, yeah. of oil or a medicine or yeah. something. And yeah. then I think Diesel. there has, yeah. yeah, there has yeah. to be that symbiosis between the rural yeah. areas and the big cities. And, and for example, Iram and I were at a meeting last week on a Brooklyn rooftop that is a farm, and they were talking yeah. about agroforestry solutions for the state of New York. But then a term that was used that I'd never heard was the New York food basin, meaning oh, wow. all the people that are basically supplying food to the cities. So there yeah. is that kind of symbiotic relationship. And yeah, yeah. I think there yeah. is an antagonism as well, because I've seen it, you probably have seen it yeah. where yeah. In the rural areas, people would prefer not to think about the city that yet they're dependent on, on economically. No. And also some rural communities always be left behind. They don't have the same infrastructure, the same transportation structure. They're always shortchanged, basically, is the kind of cultural concept. Whereas the big multicultural cities get a lot of money and they have all the wealth and all that sort of stuff. I think it, it's a sensitive issue which needs to be dealt with. But I think there is a harmony, like there is a harmonious connectivity which could be developed. But I would love to see much more distributed manufacturing done in rural environments. Environments, just as even if it was done in a commercial sense, I think there's great opportunities for that connected into what biomass is available for yeah. sure, or what infrastructure is available. And speaking of rural, urban, you've done a lot of work in Africa. Yeah. Could you yeah. describe that? Why is that working? Yeah. So one of the personally? yeah, what happened was I was at a. I sat on a, a technical expert group for the UN Convention for Biological Diversity. And at that group, we meet in Montreal. I'm not on it anymore. And when I first went to the meeting, they have representatives from all the countries or the continents. I think there might have been three or four representatives from Africa, the continent of Africa. And, and then they have these kind of observers. So I was there as an observer representing one of our learned societies. And this meeting was really interesting because it had NGOs, it had learned societies, industry, and then all these countries all meet together to discuss synthetic biology in the context of biological diversity and the convention of biological, which is not just about biological diversity, but equitable sharing of biological resources, etc. And I was in a coffee break with a guy from Kenya, and I was intrigued. What do you think? How's it going? What, you know? And he said to me, they're only here because they don't know what synthetic biology is, and they have no idea what the technology is. And the only reason they're actually in this meeting is to learn about it and take it home to their relevant governments to work out. And I just thought, this is crazy, right? This is just mental. So you've got a UN convention technical expert working group on synthetic biology full of people who don't know what synthetic biology is. Anyway, so I got friendly with them and uh, decided to go over there and share what I knew, or at least what I could share with them. And so we built up a good relationship. We had a first East African synthetic biology conference where I invited a lot of people over to share what the technology is, what it could do, what the opportunities are. And we were toured around. And clearly in parts of the world, there are big existential problems. In Kenya, it's a very agrarian rural economy, very dependent on exports into the European market. GM is an absolute no-no. And obviously, there's some significant issues, social issues and problems, like in under-resourced areas. But the technology was something that I felt could address some of those issues because it's a lower barrier to entry. It's not like building a satellite dish or something or putting something into space. This is biotechnology, right? Most people can do it at some level. And so then that just carried on and it's been going on for a while now. And I got them to come over here. A whole Kenyan delegation came. And I think my aim was not to tell them what to do, but 
but to share knowledge and what was available and what the opportunities were, and then for them to hopefully build up their own capability and capacity and understanding. And that's happened to some extent. There's some really interesting, good research groups now, both in that East African region and other parts of Africa. But it's still quite problematic in getting the kind of technology in there that we should be getting into these areas and the know-how. And that's still a real challenge. Do you think there's an opportunity for those developing countries to leapfrog technologically? Like I'm thinking, we don't have to wire for phones. We're just going to go straight to cell phones. I wonder what that looks like on the on the side. Yeah, yeah, 100% agree with that. And one of the things was pitching to them about, and they did get some internal money to go into this, was a biosensors, right? Synthetic biology biosensors are big application space, paper-based sensors or cheap type of cell-free sensing devices, which could, you know, which like the arsenic biosensor that was developed in Cambridge, University of Cambridge, different opportunities where they could take that technology, accelerate it into their own means and actually become almost like world leaders in low-cost biosensing yeah. because they got a huge need for it and all of the necessary field testing, everything could be done there. They got fantastic and they've got great scientists, by the way, really good scientists. There are application spaces there that would really benefit from this technology, that would pull the technology that we wouldn't necessarily have in the UK or maybe in the US. I feel like I've seen some progress in the last few days. They seem to be, certain African countries seem to be opening up to GM crop. Oh yeah, the GM. Yeah, definitely. The GM, I think the problem with Kenya particularly is it because it exports products into the European market, big products, they're petrified of any GM contamination because of the European Union regulations on GM products. You've got regulatory constraint on a country to not use a particular technology because it might influence their exports into a rich set of countries. And I I found that really quite annoying, actually, to be honest, very annoying. But on the other hand, there are adopting a lot of the GM technologies for cotton and other types of things, particularly in Ethiopia, actually, which is great. They're making great progress. And I'd like to think that by opening up to them and telling them a lot about, particularly on the UN group, about the technology, not just me, other people, they have a much better understanding of what this technology is and what it could do for them. And I think that's allowed them to make rational judgments on it within their own regulatory systems, which is yeah, great. I love the point that you say that, and I think this is the case probably generally, but especially with these developing countries, they can look at a technology like this and we'll see solutions that they can create with it that we in, I'm going to say in the developed world might never even imagine. And so I think that actually makes things very exciting from just an imagination space. And we've had conversations with people where we talk about how do you dual use a technology? If you're developing something from India, how is it that you have that secondary use here in the United States or in Europe? And sometimes it's just a little tweak, but I could imagine the same thing happening with any of the symbiotic products or technologies that are developed oh, sure. in Africa yeah. or India or yeah, wherever. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, it's one of my great frustrations. And so if anyone's listening and they're a philanthropist and <laughs> and they want to help low and middle income countries adopt this technology, then there are loads of opportunities to work with them. When I'm set up the Global Biofoundry Alliance, and we've got 30 members from all over the world, but there are two major continents in the world that do not have a public sector biofoundry, and that is Africa and South America. And that really annoys me as well. I get very annoyed now, Carl. It's probably a sign of age. <laughs> because I think that we need to get some biofoundries into Africa, public sector, accessible training hubs, technology, all the automation, and just focus centers where a lot of the scientists can come, try out ideas, build technologies, and it wouldn't cost a huge amount of investment. I think it's interesting because I didn't know that about South America or Africa. But I think it became very clear during the pandemic that vaccine manufacturing only happens on three continents. So what about the rest of the world? And someone sent me a text yesterday saying that Moderna is doing a program where it's basically we'll 
set up the facility, you fund it, and then you get like a cut of the vaccines or whatever products we develop. And I can see that kind of model being expanded yeah. on the biofoundry yeah. or... Yeah, there's huge opportunity. What is really great about the places I visited in Kenya is that the quality of the education is so high. The standard of the students is so great. And they're young, they're energetic, they all know what's going on in the world, and they're ambitious. And in this space, like in, in synthetic biology, because there was a one or two iGEM teams have been tried and there's a huge amount of opportunity. It's just annoying. We just can't unlock that potential because it would be extraordinary if we could. Yeah, that's really admirable, the work that you're doing internationally in Africa and South America. And earlier you mentioned the work that you're doing locally with UK startups. Can you talk a little bit about what they're yeah. doing? Yeah. And by the way, it's not just me. There's many people like me working in these continents. I'm just one of many people who are committed to that kind of challenge. In the startup scene, we were very lucky. We built our London Biofound which is public sector funded, research funded. And we use that as a kind of a, a way of offering startup companies access to state-of-the-art technologies to de-risk their technology. So we've done that successfully for several years now. And our metric on that is we don't take IP, we don't take any equity or anything. The metric for us as a public funded body was companies getting investment, de-risking their technology, and companies being set up where they could employ people. So we were very excited by being part of the journey of these companies. But we've now evolved from that model has been quite successful that we managed to get a company, a person to set up a company called Synthetic Biology Ventures, which is now funding Imperial College and the London Biofoundry through a research grant to offer the expertise to companies that they want to invest in. And that's working out really well. So we now have a dedicated investment fund, Symbioven, and I'm actually for declaration, I'm a non-exec director on Symbioven to specifically to fund seed and early stage synthetic biology companies with the support of the London and Biofoundry as part of that journey. That's really an exciting development for us because it's not an insignificant fund, but it's a start. And what it does is it just allows us to now really accelerate some of those early companies. Because if you're a standard VC model, yeah, sure, you can put money in, you can provide mentorship, all that sort of stuff, but you don't provide technical expertise that we do. You certainly don't have that kind of extraordinary wealth of technological experience that we have. And so we're building quite a nice portfolio of small startups that are now coming through the Biofoundry, getting supported by them, getting supported by Symbiven and starting those journeys. So we've got a little spurt going on of new companies. And what do those companies do? What are some examples? Oh, machine learning for strain engineering, new biomaterials, microbiome, agrotech, pathogen resistance. So everything. That's what SimBio is. It's like a very broad spectrum of different application sectors. And we're just beginning to start. We've made a few investments and we've just got quite a nice pipeline of ideas and companies coming down the pipe. So it's really exciting, actually. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And one of the questions we've been asking our guests, because a big problem, and we touched on this a little bit, is bioliteracy. There's not a lot of that. We need to do more to help people understand, yeah. for example, genetically modified organisms. Yeah. It's vilified. It's vilified in the public eye. It actually yeah. does more harm than good. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on addressing bioilliteracy? It's a really great, really great question. And I mean, have we made any progress in that over the last few years? So the DIY bio labs was one avenue for community engagement with biotechnology. And it would be obviously enthusiastic people who want to engage in that. The DIY biolabs, I thought they would grow, right? I really thought this whole thing would permeate and there'd be many more of them around and many more community biolabs. I don't think that's happened, to be honest. And I'm trying to work out why. And yeah, I, I think they've had a hard time of it. Yeah. And because uh, I was hoping that would be one way of engaging the broader people. And for example, people go to a gym, people go to a pottery class, people go to art classes, people go to cooking classes. People like to go and do things and learn things, right? 
So why doesn't people go to a biotech class or a DIY bio lab? I just don't know why that hasn't happened. And maybe because it's so abstract, the technology, people can't relate to it in some way. Whereas it's cooking, art, pottery, you get it, right? So there's some work to be done on that. Schools, where do we start? Well, you always start at the earliest age possible. We've got educational programs happening at universities now. I think it's quite clear. You can go probably to any university in the world. Many of us in the world do a synthetic biology master's course or a synthetic biology something at undergraduate level and certainly at postgraduate level. High school level, we need to now infiltrate into the curricula a bit more thoroughly. And in the US, with BioBuilder and other types of initiatives, really trying to do that in a really great way. I, I'm an advocacy for getting in early and trying to get our younger school children educated about biotechnology at a very early age and all of the wonders of biology as well. There's I no mean, easy answer me, to that. The, I think the hardest answer is how do we educate people that are in their 30s and up? Yeah. And to have them buy. GMOs. I mean, that whole GMO like yeah. controversy, we yeah. need to figure out how to unpack and change people's minds by the end of this podcast season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I've never understood the GMO controversy fully. And I get the idea of the big multinational and the kind of having the kind of control over the seed. I get all the kind of the unfairness that came out of the, the early GMO debacle. But why people are so irrational about it, I have no idea. And yeah, it's a hard win. It's a hard one. Yeah. I think it's changing with the next generation, I hope. And with social media, YouTube, Instagram, I would like to see a much more social media presence of biotech, like people following biotech influencers as opposed to <laughs> fashion influencers. And I don't know how that would happen, but it could with the right. Are, are you on TikTok? We need to get you on social media. No, no. It's but... interesting, Paul, because so one of our clients is Gay 18 Hair, which is a bioengineered protein, and they put their science front and center. And we did a presentation to all of their team. And then recently, the president said, I'd really like to have you do a series of those presentations to the stylists who are our clients. So they understand what this technology is and what the potential is. So I could see like those kinds of efforts happening in other industries, because I think, again, it's just like, we're just trying to open minds and get people excited about the things we're excited about. So I think maybe that's another way. I agree with you on social media, but I think that it's happening. We could, we would like it to happen faster. Yeah, I agree. And more, yeah, more on mainstream media as well. More stories on biotech and things. Yeah. Speaking of stories about biotech, do you have a favorite book, movie, mm-hmm. anything in pop culture that you can recommend? Uh, yeah, this probably isn't, this probably isn't going to go down. I like Bad Blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, but the Theranos story? Yeah. Oh. Secret and Lies in a Silicon Valley startup from this wonderful, I think, Washington Post, maybe, journalist. Car- John Carreau. I To me, that's a real lesson for all the synthetic biology startup community. And it's a real lesson for everything, for investors, for the extraordinary nature of human beings when they can be so convincing and so beguiling in some ways, how they can influence what are rational people to an extent. So it's got many different levels in it, which I found really intriguing. And we've had characters like that, political characters who are very influential and <laughs> convince people who are perfectly rational to believe in crazy things. I thought that was a great story. I thought it was really well covered. And thank God he uncovered it, all I can say, because it's a dreadful situation for patients and for people who are looking for this technology. And I think she might have raised $700 million or thereabouts, something like that, with a ridiculous $10 billion valuation on nothing. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, on nothing. So Synthetic Biology Startups, the book I gave them is that. Amazing. Read that. Which is, yeah. don't lie. And this is basically yeah. what she did is like straight up yeah. lie. And don't ever <laughs> think you can get away with this again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I haven't read the book, but I always just go, was she one of those people who is so convinced of herself 
Yeah. She doesn't even realize that what she was doing was wrong. That's the thing that I always thought about as the story was coming forward. No, yeah. I agree. I agree. And her lawyer was terrible. But anyway, it's a, it's a good book <laughs> and it's a, it's a great investigative journalism and it's, it makes hard reading for entrepreneurs, but it's good. So that was the book. <laughs> I think it's a good one. It's a cautionary tale. Yeah. I think we need no. that. Really, and we need it because synthetic biology is an industry that's still growing and we don't have to run a symbio version of that associated with our industry, that's for sure. It requires a lot of capital to at least to scale up. Yeah, yeah, we want real companies. So we want to be mindful of time. Is there anything else that you wanted to add that maybe we didn't cover, Paul? Yeah, I'm really glad you're still on the case on this. I think we need more like this. We need more people who are willing to do these sort of projects and try and encourage more communication of what's going on so i'm really happy to be involved and i keep saying it we're at this really crucial point (laughs) i really feel we are at a very exciting point in the technology and i'm so excited by a lot of the companies and i'm so excited by the younger generation who are really picking up the bat and then really wanting to make a difference in real impact not just super cool ideas you think we're over the super cool ideas now we're into good stuff that was a great interview wasn't it I love listening to people with British accents. So that was definitely nice. It's easy on the ears. Paul is such an interesting person. He has so many interesting things to say. What he reminded me or reminded us and will remind our listeners is that as much as we know about biology and DNA, we still don't know that much. Previously, Axel Gomez Ortigosa of Polybine had mentioned that. And Paul makes that point even clearer. Someone who's been in this space for as long as he has, he has a couple of decades over us, and he still understands how little we know and how much there is for us to learn. Yeah. And that gap of information, because we talk about the future and the vision of where this could go is still huge, right? So there's a lot of opportunities there for people to explore. This is a whole frontier of the microcosmos, and we can still learn a lot. And what Paul had mentioned about the study of omics and what that means, all these different biological processes and how they work and operate with each other is very fascinating. And I think there's a place for anyone, especially people that are operationally minded, would be really good at studying different types of omics technologies. Yeah, I agree. And when you talked about Kenya, it also reminded me of something that the guys from Polyvine had said early on to me that for IT or computational technology, you needed to be in one of the big university centers in the world, the Cambridges, the Bostons, the San Francisco. But with biology, biology is everywhere. And so biotechnology is everywhere. You just need to understand that it's there. And if you have the tools to do biotech, you can do biotech pretty much anywhere. Right. And you mentioned this with the Megan episode and even this past episode that a lot of the countries that are developing in regards to using biotech, that there are examples of leapfrogging where like the US and the countries that are using biotechnology more regularly, they're not necessarily seeing where it could go or they're not able to move fast enough because they have some antiquated systems in place. So I liked how Paul mentioned the idea of using biosensors to sense where there's toxic compounds like arsenic. Like maybe we have an antiquated system here in the US, but in Kenya or other countries around the world in Africa or South America, they can just start off using a system that has biosensors. That concept of leapfrogging, for those listeners who don't know it, is the idea that technology can arrive in a place that 
didn't have the previous technologies and can find new uses that wouldn't be necessarily intended by the original developers of the technology. The example is a lot of the developed world never had to install copper wires for telephony, and they went straight from not having any telephones or very few telephones to everyone being connected via cellular. So in biotech, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what does any leapfrogging look like. And I think you're right, this idea of sensors is fascinating. And we've been following what synthetic biology is emerging in Africa, because we know certain people there who are working on it. At some point, we should have them here on the podcast. But I think it would also be really interesting to find some people who can very much speculate in terms of what that kind of leapfrogging looks like. Maybe there's a couple science fiction authors or like an Amy Webb. We should get her on here to just talk about what does it look like when you can leapfrog the first world with biotechnology. Yeah. And if there's anyone listening that might know of examples that are happening now, please share it with us. It would be great to learn about what's going on in the world. I mean, there's so much happening in one moment Absolutely. in time. So yeah. we can't see everything. We're not all knowing quite yet, although we do have the internet. But if you do know of any examples, please share. That's a great way to end this episode. Please do share. We're happy to say we've reached a thousand listens and the number of listeners continues to increase. So we're very proud of what we've done. Our next episode is going to be a wrap up of the first 10 episodes that we've done. We'll just chat about things that we've got on our mind. We've got an exciting group of people that we're recording now, and we can't wait to share those with you listeners. So thank you for your support. Thank you. And we look forward to the next episode. See you later.